Welcome to Faith and Science. I'm Dr. John Ashton. This morning, uh, my wife uh, read to me an interesting article um, about the Western Underground Orchid and thought, an underground orchid? And so for those of you who are into, uh, you know, plants and botany and want to look it up, it's uh, Rhizanthella gardneri. So it's spelt R-H-I-Z-A-N-T-H-E-L-L-A and then G-A-R-D-N-E-R-I. And this... um, Orchid is, is possibly the only plant in the world that flowers underground and is pollinated by termites and, and ants. Um, it was uh, discovered in uh, 1928 and it um, is on the uh, critically endangered species of Australian plants. And I thought this was really fascinating, a, a plant that flowers underground. And you think of the evolutionary pathway for, you know, for something like that. To me, it, again, it's just a, a simple example that is best explained by, by creation. But then I thought, well, it's just here, as far as I know, it's only found just in Western Australia. And I know we, uh, my wife and I lived in Tasmania for a while and, of course, down there they have a number of uh, tree species. One of the most famous ones would be the hue and pine that only grow just in this particular region. And then, of course, we find in uh, Australia we have certain marsupials, uh, some of which are only found in, in Australia. And uh, it's always been something that I've been interested in and question of that why certain species are only found in in certain areas. And it, uh, to me, of course, you know, creation is the best explanation because how could, you know, the evolutionary pathways, you've got to have, as we know, massive amounts of genetic code would have to arise, you know, totally independently in all these different parts of the world. To you know, to me, it's just very clear and obvious that evolution cannot explain this sort of um, the this sort of distribution. And but it's it's interesting. Also, I was reading an article that one of the arguments that non-believers attempt to use to discredit creationists is to challenge them. Well, look, how did all these different species after the, uh, the uh, you know, after Noah's flood, after the ark landed on Mount Ararat there in the Middle East, in Western Turkey somewhere, how did that, um, how, how did the animals, you know, uh, get all over the world uh, from that particular place, you know, and would kangaroos have hopped all the way? Uh, from uh, Mount Ararat across to Australia? And if so, why aren't there fossils found of, of kangaroos, you know, in the Middle East or India or Africa or somewhere like that? And, of course, these are all, you know, legitimate uh, questions. Um, we don't, you know, obviously find, you know, fossils of um, 
these sort of animals. But one of the other interesting things to bear in mind is also, too, we know that there are lots of lions roamed around in the Middle East in David's time, for example, and, you know, there are symbols on the walls of Babylon. But we don't find fossil lions so much in the Middle East either. So we'll have to have a look at some of these things. So one of the advantages is that when you, when you think of the Bible, the Bible is a book that has been written by persons who were under the influence of the Holy Spirit. They were under the influence of God to write and record the things that they have recorded. And the believers in God recognized that these particular men were inspired by God, and their writings were preserved. And many of them recorded prophecies that God gave them that were fulfilled. And that, of course, was the, the true, uh, one of the indications that these people were inspired by God. The prophecies came, came true. But, and then, of course, in the Bible, we have a record of creation. And really, you know, creation fits the the origin of life just so well, the explanation of the genetic code, uh, the, the code reader, the ribosomes, and, and so forth. But um, what about the flood? And people often um, you know, attack and say, well, you know, Noah's flood is ridiculous. Matter of fact, I um, read uh, an article where quite a, uh, a very famous and very popular young uh, movie actress um, who'd obviously been brought up as a Christian when she was a, a young girl, but you know scoffed at the idea of Noah's Ark and all the animals uh, f- uh, being in the ark. And she said, "Oh, you know, it's just a children's story sort of thing." But really, that makes a lot of sense too in terms of the um, geology that we see around the world. I mean, the world, the surface of the earth, I've mentioned several times, is covered by sedimentary rocks, rocks that are laid down underwater, a large proportion, you know, nearly 75%, something like that from memory. A very large percentage of the uh, land surface of the earth is covered by rocks that are laid down underwater, and there's so much that fits that. But what about the animals? If all the animals that were to survive, all the marsupials and so forth and reptiles and this sort of thing uh, were on the ark, how, how did they get to all the different places? So this article actually looked at this and the author of the article was uh, Paul F. Taylor and I'm pretty sure he contributed to the book In Six Days as well. So remember, you can um, look that book up. That's where 50 scientists explained why they chose to believe in creation. So just Google creation.com and um, and in the search engine search for In Six Days or, or just do a search on Paul F. Taylor and his article will come up. Now, not uh, the article on um, the, um, how the animals spread, but you'll read his, uh, one of his articles there. I'm pretty sure he's in that book. But um, we see that if we look at the Genesis account of the, the flood, um, then supernaturally God took the animals into the ark. They came two of each kind, a male and a female, except for certain animals that were deemed clean and were, could be used for food. There were seven of those animals uh, came in to the ark. 
and it's very important that the animals came to Noah. Noah didn't have to go out and catch them. So it was a supernatural event. And then uh, the ark uh, rested on the uh, on the mountains of Ararat, and it's interesting. It talks about that the Mar- um, and um, so obviously it landed in the in the region of uh, Ararat, uh, but um, it's and therefore it's unlikely that the ark actually rested on at a point on the top of a mountain. It's it's often illustrated in children's picture books, but it. It obviously came to rest among uh, an area where obviously mountains had begun to be pushed up in that particular area and it came to to rest there in uh, an area uh, as believed to be in in, uh, western Turkey area according to one of the articles I was reading. So when we need to look at um, the... Uh, recolonization of the world and and this sort of thing. The author used an example of of dogs, and he said, "Well, consider the fact. Say you have uh, two dogs come off the ark. Now, within a relatively short time, he points out there would be a lot of dogs. For example, if each time the dogs mated, they produced six puppies." And then those six puppies matured, so you had, say, three pairs, three males and three females, and they mated, and each of those uh, uh, pairs of puppies produced six more puppies. Then very quickly after a third generation, you've now got 18 dogs. And so once you go and they all mate and produce, um, then you have lots and lots of dogs. And, of course, what they're saying is that these... Um, dogs, of course, were carrying a lot of genetic information. And so as the different um, dogs mated with the, the different genes, you began to have dogs mating. The, the, some of the dogs were tall, some were small, some had long hair, some had short hair, just like in a family where you have uh, uh, children. Some children can have a dark complexion, some a light complexion, some can be tall, some can be short, all, in, all from the same parents. And so um, we can see that very quickly animals uh, could have bred and separated out and then moved, migrated to various parts of the of the earth. And again, uh, people argue, well, then why don't we find these fossils? Now, remember that the fossils were formed when animals were destroyed that were largely living uh, before the flood. The flood buried those animals. Now, obviously, there would have been you know, some catastrophic events since the flood. But um, when, you, when you think about there are vast amounts of bison roaming in North America and this sort of thing, we don't find you know, a whole lot of bison you know, fossils around. So the fossils were formed generally under very catastrophic conditions, some major uh, cat- catastrophe and um, so uh, that required very rapid burial. And, of course, that was the event that occurred during the flood. So after the flood, we wouldn't expect fossilisation as these um, different uh, animals then migrated. And we know that quite rapidly, you know, species can uh, recolonise an area. And and classic examples... um, 
the island of uh, Surtsey, which was uh, formed by a volcanic eruption off the coast of Iceland in 1963. And of course, also uh, the eruption of a volcano on the island of Krakatoa um, in the Pacific in 1883. And so both of these cases, you ended up with a big, you know, molten blob above sea level. But within a few years, um, there were hundreds of species on these islands. And, uh, and, and of course, not all species became permanently established. But um, after a while, there were many species on these islands. So we can see, uh, you know, the animals can, can spread very quickly, particularly animals that could fly. Um, a lot of seeds and that there would have been massive uh, vast floating logs and and clumps of debris that would have carried seed from plants um, we don't know what the oceans were like there was still obviously a lot of upheaval and turmoil during the flood and a lot of material was spread in different places some would have been destroyed and buried and and others flourished uh, where it uh, went um, it's interesting, for example, here in Australia, we there uh, some um, an article that was published in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences in the United States back in August 2004. Um, that's volume 101, pages uh, uh, 12,387 onward, um, where we looked at uh, some of these... Um, uh, issues. Uh, well, it, well, actually, that particular article was on the origin of the Australian dingo, and it was looking at uh, studying the mitochondrial DNA and so forth. And they suggested that all Australian dingoes are descended from a single female domesticated dog from Southeast Asia. Um, so that's you know, as people are trying to put the examples up, but so we see that. The whole idea of the animals spreading out all over the world um, makes a lot of sense. In fact, evolutionists have exactly the same problem. They have the same problem as if they claim that species evolved, well, then how did they move all over the world? And, of course, one of the things they talk about is that there was a migration from Asia to America over a land bridge at the Bering Straits, um, and, of course, for these sort of land bridges to have existed, they need to assume that sea levels were much lower in the post-flood period. And so the biblical Ice Age model also explains that very well. And um, we can talk about age, Ice Age as um, perhaps... Um, uh, a, a, I'll talk about that a little bit more detail. Um, but I guess one of the important things is that when we look at the explanation of how animals moved over the world, if God brought the animals together, God could obviously promote the migration of the animals as well. And we can see that um, the... If the flood completely obliterated the surface of the earth and then God starting afresh, then, you know, we need to remember that the flood was a, a supernatural event. And we also need to remember that the evolutionists have the same problem 
of trying to explain animals moving all over the world. But the flood model and indeed the population of animals and species after the flood, if the flood was only about 4,500 years ago, the Earth's population models always fit that particular timeline. They don't fit millions of years' uh, timelines. Um, and so I think the, you know, the flood model fits very, very well. But I think one of the most convincing evidences for the um, flood model is the flood model really is the best explanation for ice ages. Now, when we look at um, ice ages, um, and we, you know, we, we all know about glaciers, which are large masses of ice that accumulate from snow over the year, but also moraines, so these are the boulders and debris that have been carried either pushed in front of a glacier, one of these big slabs of ice that are moving, slowly moving down, say, a mountainside, um, or else as the um, the ice moves along melt, sometimes it can drop boulders and these can uh, also be carried along on the edge of the ice and scrape the rocks. So we have a, a lot of evidence for glaciers moving in the in the past. And one of the, um, you know, the best um, examples of the, um, uh, you know, of the flood really is that the flood explains ice ages because the, um, this is a major problem for um, secular geologists um, to explain why would the earth have cooled down. And the the classic example, of course, is the um, Milankovitch mechanism. And this is an astronomical model that postulates that the regular repeating ice ages are caused by the changing orbital geometry of the Earth. And so, you know, secular glaciologists believe that over the past, you know, say 800,000 years, there were allegedly about eight ice ages lasting about 100,000 years each. But when we um, look at this, um, there's, um, you know, quite a bit of work that has been done looking at the changes in um, the radiation from outer space that would be necessary to produce that, um, you know, snowball effect on on Earth, produce uh, an ice age. Um, And when we look at the changes in radiation that actually occur with the changes in the geometry of the Earth's orbit, the changes aren't big enough to produce the massive changes in temperature. You see... um, The secular scientists have great difficulty in explaining any recent uh, ice ages based on the rates we observe today. And one of the reasons is what would trigger or sustain the the northern summer in the United States to cool by around 30 degrees centigrade or 50 degrees Fahrenheit and hence produce a huge increase in snow and then what would persist uh, dramatic climate change that then would persist for thousands of years? And um, it's, it's interesting that, um, you know, secular science themselves really at this stage still don't have any explanation. And one of the reasons is that 
once you had uh, produced this large um, amount of uh, frozen material, why, why would it melt? Because the reflection of sunlight on a white surface um, would uh, reflect the heat so effectively that uh, glaciated earth would, would actually never melt. And so they're, they're stuck with this problem that if they want to produce an ice age, what would then cause it to melt? And um, if uh, and so they have to postulate that somehow temperatures got heaps warmer than they do today. Uh, so you've got a freeze-fry sort of hypothesis uh, scenario. But, you know, um, the flood model actually is a brilliant explanation to explain the ice age. And uh, we know that during the flood, there were major changes in the surface of the Earth's crust. There, was, uh, there would have been a lot of volcanic um, eruptions. Um, and matter of fact, we have the evidence for that. We have the evidence pretty well all around the world of, and, and particularly here in Australia, of extinct volcanoes that were very active in the past, but they're not active now, and they haven't been active for a long period of time. And this is all around the world. We see the remnants of volcanic plugs and dikes and sills where lava flowed out um, in different uh, directions in the past. We know the Bible talks about the fountains of the deep opening up and, and so forth, and we have this picture of this massive catastrophic event. And so this volcanic all this hot lava heating water would have produced a lot of steam, a lot of evaporation. There would have been also the volcanic dust. We know, for example, from the Krakatoa explosion and from other explosions in Greenland and, and so forth, that um, you've got this uh, massive amount of uh, dust. And so all these uh, activities with the hot water would evaporate and then you have the cooling effect um, with um, actually provides just the ideal conditions to produce, uh, with the higher evaporation and everything, to uh, produce that moisture and yet at the same time then uh, produce cool ocean uh, surfaces. And it's interesting that most of the evaporation uh, would have occurred at mid and high latitudes, close to the developing ice sheets, dropping moisture on the cold continent. And a meteorologist... Um, uh, Michael Ord wrote that this is a recipe for powerful and continuous snowstorms that can be estimated using basic uh, meteorology. And uh, therefore, he, he, and he points out that to cause an ice age, rare conditions are required. Warm oceans for high pre precipitation, cool summers for the lack of melting snow and then it can accumulate in an ice sheet. So here we have the volcanic heating of the water, and then, of course, we have the dust clouds in the air, and it provides this um, uh, uh, scenario to actually produce this massive amount of ice at that particular time. It's interesting that um, his, uh, Michael Lord uh, writes, he's written a book, uh, uh, called The Frozen uh, Record. Actually, he's written a number of articles. Actually, if you Google MJ Ord and um, his books, he's a meteorologist. And um, he said that uh, he writes that numerical stimulations of precipitation in the polar regions using conventional climate models with a warm sea surface temperatures have demonstrated that ice sheets thousands of feet thick could have accumulated in less than 
500 years. And um, that's um, in a, an article that's found in the Institute for Creation Research, published in 2001, uh, by Larry Vardaman, V-A-R-D-I-M-A-N, and it's Climates Before and After the Genesis Flood, a numerical model and their implications. Of course, as the volcanic uh, material then, uh, you know, subside after this uh, massive amounts of um, ice had been formed, um, of course, in the gradual warming, um, then we see the, you know, the ice age, they estimate, would have lasted about 500 years after the flood. It would have reached the global maximum of thickness and... Um, they estimate that uh, it would have reached a average ice depth of about um, 700 metres or 2,300 feet in the Northern Hemisphere and about 4,000 feet or uh, just over 1,200 metres uh, in the Antarctica area. So um, when we look at um, the whole Ice Age thing and the, the fact too we have the woolly mammoths that have been found um, and uh, it's one of the uh, things too that fits the dust theory associated at that particular time, volcanic dust theory, is that some of these have uh, um, have been, uh, these animals like the woolly mammoths in Alaska and Siberia have been found resting above the flood deposit so they weren't wiped out by the flood. And some of them have been um, in areas where there was severe dust storms that produced dust stripped. And uh, they've found carcasses that show evidence of uh, suffocation in a standing position. And some have been entombed in that position. So it's we find this fascinating evidence, but it all, again, points to the flood model because the flood model provides the the heat energy for the evaporation for the volcanic activity provides the, the dust for the cooling it provides just the ideal conditions for massive precipitation of snow to produce these very thick ice sheets and create the scenarios that we see and observe and the bottom line again is that the secular glaciologists have no explanation for a cause for ice ages, let alone multiple ice ages, because as uh, I pointed out earlier, when we look at the uh, attempt to explain it in terms of uh, radiation from outer space, the Milankovitch mechanism, it just doesn't fit. The physics, the energy involved just don't match the energy required uh, to produce those changes necessary. Um, so to me, this is just powerful evidence that fits. We have the ice age, we have the different levels in sea, uh, different uh, sea levels, that fits the land bridges, that fits the migration of the animals. Uh, to me, the, the flood model just fits what we actually observe today so, so well. And I think if we have the flood, we need to remember that, yes, one time God did wipe out the world and God is coming again. Uh, he knows the world as the world gets, uh, wickedness is increasing in the world. Um, and God will once again uh, rescue his people from this world and it will be destroyed by fire the next time. 
And um, so this is a message we need to get out to everyone, and it's there in the Bible. The facts are in the Bible, and the Bible account fits the science that we observe today. You've been listening to Faith and Science. And remember, if you want to re-listen to these programs, just Google uh, 3ABN Australia, or one word, .org.au, and click on the Listen button. I'm Dr John Ashton. Have a great day. You've been listening to a production of 3ABN Australia Radio. 